Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans. Our text this evening will be Romans 8, 1 through 4. But I will pick up the reading in Romans chapter 7, verse 13. And I'll read through uh, 8, verse 4. This is the word of God. Please give your careful attention to its reading. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and, and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray once more. Our Father, we do ask that you would grant us understanding of this text. It is a very familiar text, and yet we would pray that it would never become too familiar. That there would be new things uncovered in it for us, or old things which we have already discerned would again have that precious precious quality and comfort with them as we consider your word this evening. We pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In general, you will notice that buildings are not wider at the top than they are at the bottom. If you're driving down towards Columbus and you see the skyline from afar, you'll notice that the buildings, generally speaking, do not have a, a wider uh, uh, 
pinnacle than the foundation that they're built on. Now, this, I say that this is a general principle because I know that there are exceptions. You can think of a water tower that is very large at the top and extends beyond the, the narrow uh, base. But in general, this is the way it works in architecture. Well, in our passage this evening, we have in Romans 8, verse 1, this glorious pronouncement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is something like the pinnacle of a tower, the top of a building. It is a fortress and a refuge for Christians when they are afflicted, when there are accusations that come up from their own conscience or their own heart which would accuse and condemn them. Then they come back to Romans 8.1 and see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or if they are accused from without by the accuser himself, the accuser of the brothers, by Satan, or by others in their lives, they may again come back to this verse which is like a fortress tower. But as a fortress tower, the top of it cannot be wider than the base that it is built on. The announcement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is only possible because there has been another pronouncement that condemnation has taken place, that God has condemned, that God has condemned sin in the flesh, and that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us in verses 3 and 4. And so as we consider uh, this evening this, uh, this top of the, the tower, this verse 1, this announcement that there's no condemnation, we must recognize that it has as its counterpart a base and a foundation that is equally sturdy, that is as equally thoroughgoing as that pronouncement, there is no condemnation. So we must have an equally thoroughgoing pronouncement that God did condemn. God did condemn sin in the flesh. One commentator writes, the emphasis placed upon no condemnation would in itself suggest that every aspect from which condemnation can be viewed is included in this negation. Every way that you might consider condemnation any angle you might look at it from, you meet with this conclusion, for those in Christ Jesus, there is none. And yet we have the foundation of this, which we read in verses 3 and 4, that there has been a condemnation of sin. And it's this in particular that I want to take up this evening, this condemnation of sin in the flesh. What does Paul mean that God condemned sin in the flesh. Paul has used the word sin approximately 40 times from the, mid, the middle of chapter 5, beginning in 512, and then up to this point in 8.3, he's used the term sin approximately 40 times, not counting the adjectival forms and the verbs that correspond to that, like sinful and to sin. He has used it in many ways, and it has been a flexible term. He's 
describes sin as transgressions that are committed. He's described sin as a master, a slave owner. He's described sin as a kind of king that rules. He's described sin in close connection with the passions of the body. He's even described sin in a way that makes us think that he might be talking about Satan. And so as we come to Romans 8.3, we can ask the question, which nuance of the word sin exactly is in view here? What, what, is, what does Paul specifically mean when he says that God condemned sin? It's as though this word sin is a bus that has been driving from the middle of chapter 5 up to this point. And along the way, there have been nuances climbing onto the bus. That this, this is a loaded term. That, that this word sin here is an umbrella term that encapsulates Sin in all of its multifaceted nefariousness. That there are many aspects to sin. And it's all being used by Paul under this one term, sin. And so that when we get to chapter 8, verse 3, and we read that God condemns sin, we need not ask ourselves, which particular aspect did he have in mind? It's the whole thing. All sin and all of its multifaceted aspects is here in view. He has been loading this term full of meaning as he has been going along. It's like these passengers have been getting on the bus all the way. And as we interpret this text, we need not let those passengers off the bus before we get to this glorious statement that God condemns sin. We want to narrow down and focus on what is meant. We are restricting, we are narrowing, and we're saying that God condemns sin in this respect. But that is to narrow the base of our tower. And thereby we also narrow and restrict the top of our tower in verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in this respect. But Paul has so loaded the term that all of it is in view as we come to God's condemnation of sin, that it's, it's in all of its various meanings. Jesus Christ as Savior come in the flesh is able to deal with sin in a comprehensive way so that many aspects of sin are in view when we read that God condemns sin in the flesh. So let's Consider, then, this term sin and some of the ways that Paul uses it. First, Paul uses the term sin in the way that we would probably ordinarily use the term as transgression, specific violations of God's law. You took that and you shouldn't have taken that because it wasn't yours. That's a sin. You uh, said something that you shouldn't have said. You hurt somebody with your words, that was a sin. You thought something that you shouldn't have thought, that was a sin. It was a transgression. And Paul does seem to use the term sin in this way. If you flip back to chapter 5, verse 20, just to illustrate a couple instances of this. In 5.20, Paul writes, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. 
but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so he's using, there's the increase of transgression and where sin increased, he's using transgression and sin synonymously. That where there is more transgression, where there's an increase of these specific acts of sin that are being committed, there is this abounding of sin. We could also consider 6.1 and 6.15. 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That is to say, are we to continue committing acts of sin so that grace may increase? Or comparing that with chapter 6, verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. So Paul is here describing sin as transgression individual sins that have been committed. And this is what Paul says God sent his son to address. That God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, as a sin offering to deal with it. So we can think back to the Old Testament what is a sin offering it is that kind of sacrifice which is for purifying and for covering um, uh, inadvertent sins or, or unintentional sins. But as these sacrifices were conducted, what had to be done was the person, if it was the king, whether it was the, uh, the priest, whether it was the elders of the community, would go and they would place their hand on the head of the animal that was to be slain, identifying their transgression with the animal and that animal then going as their substitute to be slaughtered and then that animal's body would be used in various ways its blood would be used to sprinkle in front of the of the veil it's certain parts of its body would be burned on the altar and certain parts of it would be taken outside to be disposed of and, and taken care of there and yet what is specifically in, in view there is in each case there is that that laying of the hand on the head of the sacrifice identifying the sacrifice with the, the transgression the sin of the one offering it now the writer to the Hebrews tells us that this didn't affect an inward cleansing that there is a greater sacrifice that is needed, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's as though we, by faith, and we will sing about this later this evening, that we, by faith, lay our hand on Christ, and there all of our sins, all of the sins committed, are laid on him and addressed in him, addressed in his flesh as he goes the cross. And so consider how much sin is laid on Christ if we only consider sin under this aspect, actual transgressions. Sins from when you were a child, from when you were a toddler, and you don't even remember them. Your parents were telling you to stay away from the electrical outlets and you were giving furtive glances over your shoulder to make sure that they weren't looking and you were going for it. Sins not yet committed. 
sins that you will at some point commit later today or perhaps tomorrow or in other points of your life. The sins that you aren't even aware of because it's so much just a part of uh, this, this process of sanctification that we don't immediately become sensitive to just how sinful we are in our lives. To return to the, the image of a bus that has been going along, how large and how many passengers would be on this bus if each seat was filled by a sin that you have committed? There would be toddlers on this bus. There would be three-year-olds on this bus, more than you could count, at every age up until your death. This bus is loaded full. And yet all of these sins are placed on the sin offering of Jesus Christ. And there God condemns sin in the flesh. There's still more to this statement that God condemns sin in the flesh. Consider that Paul has also used the term sin not just to refer to the concrete specific actions of sin, the individual transgressions that sinners have committed, but consider that he also describes sin as something which precedes those actions and which somehow determines the outcome that those actions will take place, at least when the law is the only help that's in view. That sin is something that precedes and is prior to and determines these sinful actions. And so consider what we looked at last time in chapter 7 where Paul is saying, it's, it's no longer I who am doing these concrete specific actions of sin, but it's sin that is dwelling in me. could explain this as, what, what is this, this power of sin that, that precedes the actual transgression and yet makes it so impossible to avoid, at least when the law is the only thing in view? And we could say that it's, it's a corrupt nature. A corrupt passions are, are regarded as sin. Flip back to 6 verse 12. And you'll see the statement that Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its, the body's, lusts. That what does sin reigning in the body look like or result in? Obedience to the body's lusts. That there is a, a corrupt nature that precedes the corrupt actions. And that this, too, is sin. Or in 7.5, for while we were in the flesh, sinful passions, which were through the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That there are sinful passions, the passions of the body, this, this human constitution as corrupted in its fleshly way of existence. That it's not only the rotten apples that need to be discarded. But the whole tree is rotten. And the whole tree needs to be uprooted, and the whole tree needs to be burned. It 
it is not only the sinful actions themselves that must be addressed and condemned, but the whole old sin nature, the old man itself, must be put to death. That's what Paul has again said. Our old man was co-crucified so that the body of sin might be abolished or brought to nothing. And that we have been put to death to the law through the body of Christ. That it's not just our sins that need to be dealt with, but it is a whole nature that needs to be executed and judged. One writer puts it this way. The old man, the old mode of existence of sin, was then judged and cursed in Christ. For although Christ himself was free of sin, he was nevertheless in the likeness of sinful flesh and united himself with them in their existence. In their sin, their old man was condemned in his flesh. So that there is not just the sinful actions, but even the sinful corrupt nature that needs to be addressed and even needs to be put to death, that needs to be crucified to undergo that death which Deuteronomy says is a particularly cursed kind of death. This is something that Jesus has also come in the flesh to address. Theologian by the name of John Murray writes, Not only did Jesus come in a way that brought him into the closest possible relation to sinful humanity without becoming himself sinful, but he also came in the closest relation to sin without becoming himself sinful. How do we explain that the old man is put to death, that this, not just our our individual sinful transgressions are reckoned and imputed to Christ and they're dealt with by God, but that even our natures are put to death with him. We need to be careful and understand that Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh did not have flesh that was sinful. There are some who would try to explain this by saying, well, Jesus had the the seeds sprouting of sin, but he always resisted them. That's not what we understand, that even to have the sprout of desire, the sprout of sinful desire, even beginning, is itself sinful and therefore worthy of condemnation. And so Jesus does not even have that sprout of sin springing up within him. And yet we can understand that because of his representing us as our covenant head, that there is a union with him by which our, our old man, dies with him in the crucifixion. Thirdly, we can consider what it means for God to have condemned sin in the flesh if we understand that sin has also been used in reference to the devil in the preceding chapters. In chapter 7, verse 11, we read that sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And this is an echo of Eve and what she said to the Lord when she was questioned by him, that the serpent deceived me, 
in thy age. Paul began to speak of Adam in chapter 5, and there have been echoes and allusions throughout, referencing back to Adam. He asks, uh, what fruit, at the end of chapter 6, verse 21, what, what benefit, what fruit were you getting? Those things of which you are now ashamed, for the outcome of those things is and so we hear this language of fruit and being ashamed in death, and we are again reminded that there is an, an echo or an allusion back to the Garden of Eden. As we continue to read in chapter 7, we read that sin deceived me, a word that Paul elsewhere uses explicitly to describe what, this, what the serpent did to Eve. And so there is seeming like sin here is not just the individual transgressions that you have committed. And it's not even just a sinful nature that needs to be dealt with and addressed. But it's even an external, hostile, malevolent, demonic power. One writer describes it, it is as though sin is loitering about in the Garden of Eden looking for some entry point into it. So if Paul has used sin in this sense, or he's deployed the term sin to refer even to the devil in his deception, in his uh, twisting of the law and the commandments of God, we can understand, too, then, that when we read that God condemned sin in the flesh, that this may also have in view a judgment against the devil himself. This is taught more widely in other places of scripture, we read that Jesus coming in the flesh is the devil's undoing. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has come in the flesh to bind and to plunder the strong man. Since, therefore, the writers of the Hebrews tells us, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Again, Jesus, as recorded in John, says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And that the spirit, when he comes, will convict. Uh, <clears throat> and he will convict uh, because the, the ruler of this world has been judged. And so with the coming of Christ in the flesh, there also comes, there comes a, a comprehensive dealing with sin in all of its multifaceted aspects. He comes to be the sin bearer. He comes to be the fulfillment of the sin offering. He comes to be the, the one who goes in our place, bearing our sins and, and receiving the curse on the cross for us. He goes to be that one in whom our old man is put to death. And he also comes to deal with Satan himself that one who was loitering about 
and looking for some entry point into the garden to deceive and to introduce sin and the reign of death among mankind. And that when Jesus comes and he makes a comprehensive pronouncement of no condemnation for you who are in him, he is able to do so because he comes to deal with sin comprehensively. There is another aspect to this foundation upon which our, our tower is built. There is on the one side the condemnation of sin, but the flip side to that is the fulfillment of righteousness. That God condemns sin, but he also makes it so that the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And that both of these are aspects of Christ's coming in the flesh. That Christ in the flesh has undergone the penalty and the judgment for sin, but he has also fulfilled in the flesh that righteousness which the law demanded so that that righteousness might be ours. We refer to this as the active and passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is the obedience that Christ rendered in suffering the penalty for our sins, that the passive obedience is, that Jesus undergoes the, the curse. But then positively speaking, he fulfills righteousness actively for us you can think of it this way, that if a parent tells a child to clean their room and they disobey and they don't do it, perhaps they make the room even messier than it was, the parent punishes the child in some way. Well, Christ goes as that one who bears the punishment that the child uh, was under. But then the, the, the timeout is over, whatever punishment was rendered is over. The room still has to get cleaned. And Jesus cleans it too. He undergoes the penalty for not fulfilling the law, for transgressing the law. But the law still has to be fulfilled. And he does that too in his flesh. That he leads a life of perfect holiness in the flesh for you so that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you. That Jesus in our flesh truly does this. Though that flesh was assaulted by Satan, though Satan would come to the wilderness and test Jesus, appealing to or approaching him in a circumstance in which he hungered truly, in which he experienced human hunger, sharing with us in flesh and blood, Jesus resisted. Jesus would render an obedience in the flesh, even with all of its mortality, with all of its susceptibility to pain, and he would do so perfectly even to the point of death on the cross, that Satan would pursue Jesus, entering the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And even unto death, Jesus remains faithful to the Father and renders to the Father in the flesh a perfect, spotless obedience. And this is the righteous requirement of the law that is then given to you who are in Christ So this is why God has sent his own son to deal with sin, to address sin, to condemn sin, and so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you, 
you who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so throughout this week, know that you have a strong tower, a fortress that you can take refuge in. The name of this fortress is Jesus Christ, and the view from the top of this fortress is no condemnation. You can go and you can enjoy the beautiful view from the top of that fortress because it is built on a solid foundation that God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh and so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful news, that there is no condemnation for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that comprehensive way in which our Savior has dealt with sin, that he does not come as a Savior by half measures, but that when he has come in the flesh, that he comes to deal uh, with sin and with the devil and to do away with all of uh, sin and all of its multifaceted wickedness. We praise you for so great a Savior, and we praise you for the active obedience of Christ, and we confess that there is no hope without that obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name.